Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you're listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. Today, we have with us in studio manager of Q Management Group, Zach Kelm. This guy is a rock star, not just on a professional level, but on a personal level. I've gotten to know him over the last year. He manages artists like Skillet and Colton Dixon, just to name a couple. He's had a massively successful run with Skillet, so he's going to let us a little bit behind the scenes to hear some of the things that they've done. He's going to share with us what I think is a pretty profound story of overcoming adversity and difficulty, difficulty that a lot of us will never even have to experience and has still came out stronger on the other side of it. So there's a lot of really good inspiration in this one for you guys out there who maybe you're going through some some stuff, feeling like you're grinding through life on your way, but haven't made it yet. Zach has a great story to share, so check that out. But before we jump in, I just wanted to say a huge, huge thank you for all of you guys continuing to be faithful listeners. Your reviews help us out a ton. If you haven't done that already, head over to iTunes, leave us a good rating and a good review. That means the world to us. Share it with a friend. That's the biggest thing you can do to help us out. If this show has meant something to you, pass it on. Send the link. And we did want to make the announcement that if you have not already heard, we've released our first music production mastery course. This is a journey of a song from start to finish. We don't leave anything out. We cover things like songwriting, arrangement, pre-production, programming, vocal, guitar, bass, and drum production, overdubs, mixing and mastering, editing, and even dive into some detail on Pro Tools and Logic. For those of you guys wanting to learn more, this is a place to start. If you'd like to have any info on that course, text PRODUCE, P-R-O-D-U-C-E, to 44222. Text PRODUCE to 44222. We'll send you a free copy of our top 10 tips for successful music production, as well as send you info on that course. Get started with that today. Again, text PRODUCE to 44222. And let's jump into the interview. We're here at the Full Circle Music Show. We've got Zach Kelm in the studio. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you. You've had a crazy weekend, but thank you for uh, taking the time to be here anyway. It means a lot. Yeah, it was a great weekend. Happy 4th. I guess happy belated 4th. Yeah. So for our listeners out there who don't know, Zach Kelm's a manager for artists Skillet and Colton Dixon, as well as others, and has had a massively successful career as a manager. You're actually our first manager on the show. Uh, I'm honored. So thank you for wearing those shoes. But can you tell us a little bit of your backstory, how you kind of first got into the music business? Yeah, I say I backed into it in some ways. If you're a person of faith, then you would say that God had his hand in that, and, and I certainly believe that to be true. I was a camp counselor who backed into the music business. I was at Canacuck camps. If you've ever heard of Canacuck before, they're a, a Christian athletic set of camps in uh, southwest Missouri. So I was an athlete in Fellowship of Christian Athletes and kind of did that nationally through high school and then went on to uh, be a counselor at Canacuck teaching football and wrestling and loved it. Thought that's where God had purposed me and given me vision and working with kids and being an athlete and was at camp, just really thought this is what I was going to do. Fast forward a few years, I ended up at a small liberal arts Christian university in Missouri, 
they asked me to start working with them doing their Christian concert series. And where I'm from, there's not really Christian music. There is now. Back then, there really wasn't. So I didn't necessarily grow up listening to Christian music. My parents didn't become Christians until later in life. And so that wasn't necessarily part of my upbringing. But I had a background in event planning and setting up different kinds of functions and things. And so that seemed to be kind of second nature to me. And so I kind of did it not thinking of it as a career, thinking of it as something that I could do at university and serving the student body and such. And people started offering me jobs in Nashville. And eventually, Canacuck was so well connected to Nashville back in those days, Amy's kids and Smitty's kids and maybe Stephen's kids. I don't know. I don't remember everyone. But there was a lot of people from Nashville who were either coming down to be involved with Canacuck from songwriting or producing theme songs or that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or sending their children, yeah. that uh, you know the camp directors and such were all they kind of well-versed in what Nashville was about, particularly the Christian music industry. So the director at the camp I was at pulled me aside one day, and he just said, hey, I know that the plan is for you to finish university and come back here and you know potentially work with us ongoing, but I just think that you need to be open-minded that maybe you're supposed to be in the music business and maybe your purpose is supposed to be not here but there. Mm-hmm. And you always have a home here if I'm wrong, but... I just want you to pay attention to these opportunities that are coming your way. And honestly, the way God made me, I'm real loyal. So in my mind, that decision had already been made a couple of years earlier. I wouldn't have necessarily even thought about, well, hey, maybe I'm supposed to be doing something different here. So had he not done that, I think that I wouldn't have even considered the fact that people were saying, hey, have you ever thought about moving to Nashville? Have you ever thought about being a promoter or working in the music business? That would have never probably even dawned on me. But... When he pulled me aside and said that to me, which I'm thankful for, you know, I think all these years later, the fact that someone would recognize something in me that I couldn't necessarily see in myself and be willing to stop, you know, everything that he had going on in his life and just say, hey, young man, I want you to kind of be open to what's going on here. So thankfully he did. And now here we are 20 something years later. And I moved here in 1997. The last concert I did at SBU, the university I went to, was Rebecca St. James. Yeah. And her father walked up to me that day and said, hey, what's your plans? What are you doing? And any of you who know Dave well, Dave's about as tenacious of a person as I know. I mean, he's been successful in the sense of he's been doing this a long time, and he's certainly successful, but I don't think he would want his life measured by success. Sure. But when you've worked with him and know him, that tenacity that he brings to life is one of the attributes that has enabled him to be the successful person he is. So, you know, Dave comes up to me and says, well, hey, when you come to Nashville, come see me. And so I had a few interviews that I did, and I went and saw Dave, and they lived on a farm out in the country, and he said, well, listen, if you want to come stay with us and work in our management company, you know, would love to have you, and that's what I ended up doing. So for five and a half years, I Lived at their farm and worked with Dave in management, and he taught me a lot of things in a very short period of time. Yeah, that's a pretty good uh, mentor oh, to have. absolutely. I mean, I think back now, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I had no idea then what that was going to look like. They had a small staff, and Rebecca was kind of coming into the height of her career, and so they needed all hands on deck for everyone that worked with them. So. Mm-hmm. In those situations, people have the tendency to either not be able to handle it or just jump in and be able to handle it. In that sense, 
anyone that was in that office, you either had to jump in and wear multiple hats to try getting all the things that needed done, or you just probably weren't cut out to be doing that kind of job. So when I got there, uh, it was immediately all hands on deck. So I learned quickly lots of things that I couldn't have learned just starting off somewhere else. So Yeah. uh, yeah, I'm really thankful for that. So we always say no listener left behind. And since we have not had a manager on the show yet, what does a manager do day in and day out? Oh, gosh. Is it like the spinal tap guy that carries around a baseball bat? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's everything. And it's seasonal as well, depending on how many artists you manage. In my managerial career, I've kind of chosen to keep it small. I probably learned that from David. You only have a certain amount of bandwidth in your life. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it to consume me. You know, I want to be able to be a good husband and a good father and be able to enjoy my passions as well as my passion for the music business. So just my personal journey, I've decided to take a more boutique approach, which means I have very few artists and the artists I have, I try to focus completely on. But regardless, artists have different seasons that they're in. So, you know, if you have 10 artists, well, you're probably always in one of those seasons ongoing or the same season with multiple artists. In my sense, because I only have a handful of artists, that can ebb and flow. So when you're working on making a record or an album, then, of course, that looks differently than when you're in the middle of marketing and doing promotion and touring. So for someone who doesn't necessarily understand, okay, what does a manager do? It can be as simple as your office is booking travel and setting up schedules and dealing with business managers, making sure finances are taken care of, all the way to being down into the minutia of picking songs and helping craft the right material for an album to setting up promotion and marketing for promo tours and touring both domestically and internationally and working with booking agents and publishers if that artist has a publisher. So it's just really kind of all-encompassing. Whatever an artist has going on, little or big, the manager is the person connecting you know, the different tentacles to all the different relationships in that artist's life. And many times, depending on how deep the relationship goes, it's not just a business relationship it's a friendship and a personal relationship. So you'll end up connected to helping on the personal side as well as the business side. Hmm. And again, the trust that comes with that comes over years. That's not something you do overnight. So why does an artist need a manager or do they need? I would say yes, an artist needs a manager. I think all of us look at ourselves and the world in a certain way. Artists are creative people and they create... And these are their babies. These are the things that God has gifted them at. Now, some artists can be left and right brain people, I suppose. But most of the time, artists will need that person that comes in and helps put feet on the pavement to whatever endeavors they're involved with. And so, yes, I would say that an artist needs that. At the very least, we all need that buffer sometimes between whatever point A and point Z is. And just having that person that's there to be able to be the advocate when you need to be the advocate and sometimes say, hey, I think you need to take a step back from this. Go sleep on it. Let's talk tomorrow. Sure. And so I think artists need that many times. Yeah. So do you sleep as a manager? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? In my Uh, head, you say all those things, and it's like, okay, so you're dealing with their international stuff, so that means it's like 3 in the morning here and it's 8 a.m. in Russia or wherever. Yeah, they're at. <laughs> you know, my wife works in the music business as well, and I don't know when this was. I think it was sometime during between the Comatose album on Skillet and the Awake album on Skillet. Comatose was about to be gold, and I think we were working on Awake. I don't recall, 
But regardless, things were kind of hitting that tipping point for the band, and it was really starting to happen. And I'm pretty sure we were making a wake, because in the relationship I have with John, we talk about songs, and he'll pitch me different ideas, and it's a reciprocal relationship. So I think he was in the studio in L.A., and I think it would have been 2 a.m. there, 4 a.m. here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he had an idea or he was feeling, I don't remember what it was. I just remember that I got a call at 2. So at midnight, I took that call. And then I got a call at 4, 2 a.m. for him. And I took that call. Yeah. And my wife grabbed the phone out of my hand and she said, John Cooper, it's 4 a.m. <laughs> I am hanging this phone up. <laughs> Click. Oh, my So there is truth to the fact that managers sometimes don't sleep. But honestly, I don't think twice about it. For me, it's just kind of like, hey, great. He needs me for something. What what do you need? Velvet didn't have the same opinion at that point. (laughs) So was he kind of offended in that moment? Oh, no. He felt horrible. He's like, uh, he calls my wife the shroud. She's a publicist, and she's really good at what she does. So he calls the next morning. He's like, okay, where's the shroud? I need to apologize. I'm sorry. I was in the middle of a moment. I just needed some counsel. <laughs> Needless to say, I don't have the phone in the bedroom any longer. Yeah, well, the, okay. So that you, you just answered my, my question. I was going to say, do you sleep with your phone under your pillows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't any longer. Happy wife, happy life. Amen to that. Yeah. So kind of along with that, with always being present, being available, is it important for an artist's manager to live in a city like Nashville or LA or New York that's kind of one of the music hubs? Oh gosh. I would have said yes, definitely, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Today, technology makes it so easy to stay connected and we're all on our smartphones and doing our business no matter where we're at. I wouldn't say you couldn't do it. It certainly makes it easier because you're present in the industry that you're involved with, and that comes along with relationships. And just sometimes you take a meeting that brings an opportunity you weren't expecting at that meeting. Um, So I don't think you have to be. Certainly there are managers that live all over the place that, that make it happen, and it works. At the same time, there's just sometimes those things that happen because you're in the place that it's happening, if that makes sense. So. Yeah, I I don't think you have to be, but I think there is some level of opportunity that can happen by just being in community and being in relationship with people that are doing what you do. Sure. Well, you hit on a pretty important thing that it is a relational business. Right. Obviously, a big part of being in a relationship is just being there. That's right. Yeah, and and you find out the older you get, life is that. Yeah. It is a relational, no matter what you do, it's all about the relationships that you have and and how you handle yourself and operate within that, you know, those relationships. Yeah. So. so you talked a little bit about your wife. Your wife, Velvet, is also a pretty mega successful publicist in the music business. Yes. You two are quite the power duo. So how has that been with both of you working in the music industry? You know, it's funny because people ask us that a lot because it's like a 24-7, you know, publicist... When something happens, their lives are turned upside down. You know, I can think of a few instances where she was involved with X, Y, and Z, whether it was an author or a, an artist, and something controversial happened, and you, your phones are ringing off the hook nonstop. And that's just part of what she has to do. And then are you answering saying, hey, this is Zach. It's yeah. 4 a.m.? <laughs> no. No, I'm not. <laughs> that 
particular thing didn't happen, but I remember when uh, she was involved with something that had to do with the president. Yeah. And so the president's office was calling, and I was like, wow, this is pretty intense. Yeah. And it was. Yeah. It was really intense. No, I mean, people ask us that all the time. We have a really great relationship, and we're both kind of geared the same way. So it's not the sense where I'm always working and always needing to be accessible and such, and then she's in a different field where she's nine to five and she's like, man, why is my husband? She's kind of doing the same thing. So we kind of walk and step together. Mm. She being a mom, I think probably struggles with this much more than me being a man struggles with it. But for her having children and being a mom and and all of those things, that always pulls from her. Mm -hmm. But we both believe in working in our giftings and our purpose. Mm. And so we or I'm constantly saying as we talk about what our careers are, what we're doing, that these are the spaces that God has put us in. You know, this is what he's made us to do. So when you're working in that purpose, it gives you an energy, it gives you a direction and a grounding and a footing that you just continue to remind yourself, like, this is what God has purposed me to do. This is the time and space that he's giving me boundaries. And so that enables us to kind of walk in step. But our personalities are alike in the sense that we both can handle that kind of pressure and stress. Yeah. And so it's not like we're so innately different that we're kind of pulling at each other. We don't, you know, and, and we literally sit in the same office together. So people are like, you guys are together 24-7, seven days a week. Yeah. Do you not like kill each other? <laughs> and, and honestly, we don't. I mean, I literally sit from, you know, me to you every day from her and we just love it. Yeah. So, so do you find yourselves kind of having to put boundaries around just not talking about work stuff all the time, or is that just kind of the nature of... I think it's in our relationship, it's kind of the nature. I wouldn't say that there aren't times that we don't go, okay, we got to get a little space here. That always happens. You know, I just think in any relationship, if you've got, particularly if you come through some really intense times, we've had also a personal side to our life that has been pretty intense. So sometimes one plus one can equal eight when you're dealing with those kinds of equations. And so in those moments, you sometimes need to get a little reprieve. But most of the time, it kind of ends up being, like I said before, if you're walking in the purpose you think you're created to do, then it kind of is in the narrative of your life. And at the same time, you don't let it take you over. You keep it in the space that's healthy and make sure that your priorities are right with being a father and a husband and and all of those things as well. But I think if you're walking in health in those, you can do both. Yeah. Well, since I've known you and Velvet, even over the last year, you guys have kind of been through some massive stuff. Do you care to share a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, for us, it's, um, I think the more time we get away from the craziness that's been over the last five years, I think we're starting to see that, you know, Maybe God's going to tell a story through this. I'm not exactly sure. The real short order is five years ago this August, I lost one of my best friends to a freak accident. He was trying to save his brother from a liver disease, which he did do, but he gave his life doing it. Mm. Followed by that, I ended up getting diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And followed by that, I had a leg injury that I had a knee surgery that the surgeon accidentally over tourniquet or clamped my leg and it it caused a nerve injury to my right femoral artery or nerve and in the midst of that we had our firstborn son who started uh, having seizures he got diagnosed with epilepsy and in the middle of a hundred plus seizures it's just crisis management at every point and it just Mm -hmm. 
it tears at everything you are watching your child have a grand mal, or I think they're called clonic tonic seizures now. Mm-hmm. And so we, we get through all of that, and we had a couple miscarriages. My wife talks about this now, so she won't mind me talking about sure. it. And we thought that having children, we had two boys, having any more children was kind of out of the thought process at that point. So we had moved on from having any more children. And then last year we got surprised that we were pregnant and it was a little girl. Mm. And uh, we quickly realized that something was not right with the pregnancy, according to the doctors. And I think early on they thought that she wasn't going to make it. I mean, they told us she wasn't going to make it. And then every step that happened, you know, she would make it a little further. And then finally it became, well, we did some genetic testing and they said, no, nothing's wrong. We're just really shocked. If we can get to 24 weeks and one pound, you might have a chance. And so just before Christmas, they came back and said, hey, we think this genetic testing's wrong. We think you need to do it again. And, and Velvet's a really strong woman. I mean, she is just a wonderful person, but she's a strong soul. And, and I remember she just burst into tears and we'd kind of gone through the emotion of everything that we'd been through the previous four years, five years. And so now they're telling us again that our baby has a, what they assumed was a chromosomal disorder and that they needed to do an amnio on the spot. And so all of those emotions, I think, kind of came out at once. And so they do the amnio. That was right at Thanksgiving. And then you had to wait three, two weeks, three weeks for those results. So you've got Thanksgiving to Christmas. We're in a waiting pattern. Is this little little girl going to make it or not going yeah. to make it? Is there going to be a problem? Is there not? They came back and said, well, to our surprise, there's not a genetic component here. Uh, she's just extremely growth restricted. Wow. And uh, at that point, you know, there was lots of people praying. Of course, we were praying and, mm-hmm. and just asking God to spare this little girl and that he might, he might allow her to make it into this world. And so we were seeing doctors two and three times a week because it was such a complicated pregnancy. And we got to January, and they said, okay, you're at 24 weeks and a pound. You know, you have a 50% chance at this point. Wow. And everything was kind of plodding along, and her due date was the end of April. President's Day, we had our youngest with us. Mm-hmm. He was off from school that day, and he was with us. We were just going along to a Doppler uh, ultrasound as normal, and a doctor comes running in the room, and he says, get to the hospital immediately. And as it ended up, the blood flow to the baby had stopped and started to reverse, Mm -hmm. and that's a recipe for disaster. So they rushed us to the hospital, and Velvet gave birth to a two-pound, six-ounce little girl. And so we spent 75 days in the NICU, multiple scares. Uh, Anyone that has had a preemie will understand, you know, there's these things called spells. Their brains and their central nervous system is not ready to be in the world yet, and so they just stop breathing. And we had lots and lots of those, a couple really bad ones. And and so she has a small hole in her ventricles and some other things, but she's now nine pounds. Here we are four months later, and... uh, She's our little miracle. Oh, praise God, man. Yeah. That's huge. But I kind of remember following your story throughout all of that, and I'd follow, you know, Velvet had her blog up or right. all of that stuff. And, you know, we're still working on projects. Right. Like we're working on records, and you're working on launching a skillet thing, and she's working on this and this and this, and I'm still getting email replies. Like, how are these people still doing all of this stuff? And 
we had a conversation recently where I was pretty inspired because I was like, well, if I was in that situation, I was in the NICU for 75 days. I can't even imagine like just having my phone on, let alone doing all these projects and stuff. And you, you kind of just said something to the effect of, well, you know, the world still turns and we've got to do our thing. And so can you talk about that in those seasons, which those things you just listed off are more than a lot of people will have to ever experience in a lifetime, all in five years. Yeah. So what is it that kind of keeps you focused on moving forward and not just throwing in the towel, you know, for lack of a better Oh, gosh. You, you know, I think like we were talking earlier, there's a fight or flight response that happens in any emergency. And it just happens that the way that we are geared, we don't flight, uh, we fight. As you were saying that, I forgot one. Because I had had radiation, it lowered my immunity, and I ended up getting this really rare they told me at the time it was the 25th case in the entire U.S. in that wow. particular time frame. And so I was kind of the rock star of infectious disease in <laughs> Vanderbilt for that eight-day period. But an image came to my mind as you were talking because they had to do surgery on my hand to get the infection out and see what they were dealing with. And Velvet took a picture of me. I couldn't type with my right hand, my predominant hand. Yeah. And I've got my laptop in the hospital. My hand looks like it's got a huge gauze Q-tip glove on it. And I'm sitting there pecking away with my other hand trying to work. <laughs> and, and I remember she put up a post on Facebook of me on my phone sitting in the hospital with my laptop. And she's like, yeah, he's still working. <laughs> but in all honesty, I, I think it boils down to if you're going to rise to an occasion, you know, if your response is fight. And I think this happens really in, in most people. You don't realize the community that God's put around you, mm. the depth of the relationships that you have. If you haven't realized those in an emergency, those really, they become palatable to you and they become real to you and people really do rally around you. And that sense of community that you can have in that time, it kind of helps give you an energy to step up as well. And so I think we've had such great, friendships and church relationships and community during all of those times. And at the same time, I think what I said to you that day is the world does keep turning, and there is a sense that, yeah, it does. No matter what we're all going through, time doesn't stop. People's lives don't innately stop. It keeps happening. So yeah. you can either make the decision that, okay, I'm going to step up here and I'm going to trust God in whatever it is that I need to trust Him in for today— and not get too far ahead of myself. I think we learned that when we had our firstborn and he started having seizures and they told us he had epilepsy. You can allow yourself to be frozen in time mm -hmm. by the fear that what tomorrow could bring. And the reality is, if you hold true to, we're only given today, yeah. and today is the day that we're to live life to its fullest and in purpose, then I'm not saying that's always easy to do, but yeah. I'm saying if you can live in that perspective, then God gives you enough for that day. Mm. And for us, that's what's happened. God has given us enough for that day. And then when yeah. tomorrow comes, we'll take tomorrow as it comes. Yeah. Well, that's powerful stuff, because I think as people, we put each other on these pedestals, and we think, well, he's had all this success, so he must have not had the same difficulties I've had. Or we make these comparisons, but to hear somebody who's been through the ringer and is still positive, charging forward, it's an inspiring thing. So, yeah, thanks. Thank you, you know what's funny? That. I think as we all grow in whatever careers we're doing, there's always someone else more successful than you are. 
you know, there's always someone else you can look to and go, golly, I'm just not sure I measure up. I don't necessarily think of myself as successful. Hmm. I think of myself as I'm in a career that I love doing, I'm passionate about, I get to work in relationships with these different artists and different people. And I just love the community of people that you and I and we all get yeah. to work in. Yeah. So I literally don't even think of myself as successful. But the reality is the older you get, no matter what you're doing, there is always someone more successful. Mm-hmm. There is someone that you can compare yourself to and just go, oh, man, right. I'm not sure I measure up. I mean, gosh, would I love to be Irving Azoff? You know, would I love to be X, Y, and Z? Right. Now, maybe those guys don't look around and go, Gosh, I'm just not sure I measure up. I'm, yeah, <laughs> but but there always is someone historically that has kind of been groundbreaking in a particular career that you could always look to. Yeah. But the reality is, is that you're in your time and space that you're in, and and you have giftings and relationships that you have been put in charge of. And so I try to keep it in that perspective because otherwise, you know, there certainly are lots of successful people in life, and I just want to work in the time and space that yeah. I've been given. Well, part of that, and especially being a manager, is about attracting the right artists and the right talent for you to work with. Yeah. Two artists in particular that you work with now, Skillet and Colton Dixon, just have had massively successful careers. So how has it been that you've been able to attract such high caliber talent? Well, someone gave them bad advice, I think. No, I don't. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's like anything. You, you start off in something. If you have some measure of success, then people start calling you or start referring you to different things. Sometimes it's not always fair. Just because one artist happened to break doesn't necessarily mean that I deserve another call from another artist. But it does happen that way. And certainly that comes with responsibility as well. In this sense, you know, I've worked with Skillet for 15 years. And I attribute the early success that I was able to have to, you know, David investing into me early on. And so, you know, I think there are people who invested into me and hopefully I'm going to be able to invest into, you know, those that work for me and with me. And in the future, then, you know, maybe they'll be doing their own thing. So I think anytime you have a successful act, then you're going to get people that say, okay, well, Maybe they were the reason that that was a part in being successful. So I'm mm. going to try to call them. Sure. And again, I remember being that 22-year-old who was just starting my company. Skillet had sold 100,000 albums. And I wasn't necessarily the guy getting the calls. You know, I didn't have the A-level artists. I do remember the tension that you live in in those early times of not necessarily having a platinum artist or a, an A-level artist mm. that, that is filling capacity venues in whatever scale. And the guys that do get the calls immediately, you know, there's a top list of guys that are going to get calls based on their level of success. And that is kind of life. So yeah. in anything, any industry, yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah. So you stay true to who you are and what you do and try to do it with excellence. And and eventually, you're going to start getting those calls, too, if you're able to be good at whatever craft that you're in mm-hmm. or whatever industry you're in. Well, you talked about that Skillet's been with you for 15 years. Yeah. From what I know, a lot of artists and managers kind of cycle through and go from one to the next to the next to the next. So it speaks a lot about you and you're doing something right, the fact that you've had this long-standing relationship. Well, if I go back to when I started Q, I started Q in 2002. Like I said, I worked for David for five and a half years, and he did teach me that at least how he viewed management, and you should have him in sometime. He, yeah. he, uh, 
he's got so much knowledge in lots yep. of different areas. But he did teach me that focus in this line of business sometimes is everything. Mm. And so making the decision to have a boutique company versus staffing up with, you know, 10 project managers and 10 to 15 acts and all of those things. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Mm. Some people, that's what they do and good for them. They can do that. For me, I chose it to be purposeful in relationship and focus in a few things and try to do those best of my ability. So if you're going to do it in that model, then it does become a relationship and it does become a friendship. And I think that is what's carried my relationship with Skillet, the Coopers in particular. Mm -hmm. I consider them some of my best friends. You yeah. know, we do life together. We just don't do business together. Yeah. We celebrate the victories and we both take our stripes when we have the failures. And that creates a depth of relationship. Yeah. It's not just a business transaction. We mourn over each other's personal losses and things that happen in life, and we celebrate not just the business transactions, but the things in life that, whether that's birthdays or whether that's a personal achievement or, or whatever that is. So my personal opinion is that is what has carried the longevity of our relationship and our career. And then, of course, when you continue to have success, mm -hmm. then it seems like it's working, and so you continue on. Yeah. So, yeah. As we're kind of wrapping up, I mean, there's a lot of artists who get into music who will never see that level of success just in terms of, you know, numbers and sales and filling arenas and right. having the lasting career that they've had. What do you attribute skillet success to if you can boil it down to something? Well, for John, I think any artist, but for John in particular, this is, gosh, I don't know how you could boil it down. I'll try to think on my feet here and try to boil it down quickly. So he was always an artist left of center in our genre of music. I think when David and I started working with Skillet, when I was still working with David, the worship movement was really starting to happen. In that time and space, I think Sonic Flood had just had a real successful run. I think Newsboys was starting to do a worship album. I think Rebecca was starting to think about doing a worship album. So that was kind of permeating the scene. Of course, AC Music was still predominantly the venue of choice in our particular industry, and they were real left of center of that. They kind of didn't necessarily have a place. But John was always true to himself. If you look back 17 years ago, John is exactly the same person then as he is today. And so he was true to himself as an artist and stayed that way. Even though he was left of center of where the industry was at that time, he stayed true to who he was as an artist, and he continued to grow in his craft. He continued to fine-tune what he was doing. And then we were able to put relationships around him that helped find that avenue by which he could work in. And for him, it ended up being Atlantic Records, and it ended up being in the general market rock scene, as well as then as that cycle came full circle, he was still being the artist that he always had been, and music moved towards him. And so instead of him trying to move towards music it kind of moved in the direction of rock as a culture. Yeah. So we went through a, a decade plus where rock was getting played in the top 40 scene and, and you were seeing it permeate culture. Mm -hmm. And John was being who John always was and creating the music that, if you look at his catalog, yes, it's ebb and flowed, but it's quintessentially Skillet. When you hear a Skillet song, it sounds like a Skillet song and nothing else. Yeah. And so you know, we were able to capture time and space and he was able to stay the artist that he always was. 
And so I think for him, we put those relationships and those vehicles in place and off to the moon. Mm. Well, it's been a a great career and uh, a very lasting thing. So we're really honored that you would take some time to come in here today, share your story. Been inspiring for me to listen to, and I think our listeners will get a lot out of it too. Oh, thank you so much. I feel honored to uh, be sitting here and chatting a little. Zach Kelm on the Full Circle Music Show. Thanks, guys. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. This show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jericho Scroggins and Kaylee Ingram. Once again, if you haven't already, text PRODUCE to 44222 and get info on our Music Production Mastery course. We'll send you a free copy of our top 10 tips for successful music production. Straight to your inbox. Head over to iTunes, leave us a good rating and a good review. And we'll see you next week.